Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter. And you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. I'm always so grateful that so many of you tune into this podcast week over week, especially uh, because this is fairly new for me. I did have another one before, and we built up that audience pretty quickly, but also organically. And so I'm I had no idea when I started this if you know anyone would join. So I just am very grateful to all of you for selecting this out of the 90,000 other podcasts that exist in the world. That said, if you listen to this on a re- uh, regular basis, you are probably used to the beginning either being uh, what the fraud episode or what the fraud segment, I should say, and talking about new fraud trend or fraud in the news, those kinds of things, and then diving into uh, a lot more of a solo topic in fraud prevention for online or consumer scams and those types of things. And that, or really great interviews with great people. And that is 100% what I was planning on doing for this week's episode, just like I always do. But I don't know if the universe talks as much to you guys as it does to me. Maybe I just have learned to pay attention. And I say universe just because I don't want to offend anyone. I know that might be your, you know, your God, your spirit, your, all the things. I just, you know, I just think it's whatever is up there, whatever you believe, that's what I mean when I say universe. We all have that thing that we all believe, but it's all different. So, you know, when the universe is trying to tell you something and you don't want to listen, so it gets a little bit louder and then a little louder, and then it's like screaming at you. This is what's happened to me this week. In the midst of more fraud than I can ever remember all at once in 2020 because of COVID, because of the economic issues that so many people are having. They are falling victim to scams that are, you know, promising them money quickly and and all of that. So there's just a lot going on and a lot of you are feeling it. I've also had several conversations either via email, LinkedIn message, or on the phone with fraud fighters who are exhausted or who are super discouraged or don't know what's next and are just like kind of at their end of their rope or, or pretty close, right? And just not knowing. And a few of them have said things like, well, I'm sure you can't understand, but it's just really, really hard. Or, you know, you're lucky that you didn't have to deal with this or something like that to assume that just because I am a consultant and I speak at big conferences and I have my own podcast and blah, blah, you know, I got this international award for being a fraud fighter that I didn't even know existed before I got the award. Like, I think people just assume we see the shiny 
stuff and they all you also see the things that I choose to post on on LinkedIn and on social media I think we just assume that everybody has it better than us that's not the case at least for me and I kind of realized that I've been doing a lot of people a disservice I think in our industry to if you think that things have been easy on the come up (laughs) I've done you a disservice um I've never intentionally lied but I just feel so much more comfortable talking about fraud trends and chargebacks and you know ATOs and everything else than I do my own story and I would venture to guess that a lot of us are like that I mean I've never you know I don't I haven't committed a felony. I, I haven't done anything crazy. And not to say that that's a horrible thing if you have, because obviously there are people in my life that have, and I actually think they have a lot to offer the world. But I mean, I haven't done anything crazy, scary, but just a lot of things, you know, in our own lives that we're probably ashamed of, or if we could go back and do it again with what we know now, we would do things completely differently. So I am going to take this time to share a few of the highlights of my career that I think will be helpful to everyone. And I don't mean the highlight reel, like the best parts of my career. I mean, the times when I genuinely didn't know what was going to happen or when I thought it was over or when I, you know, oh my gosh. I mean, this could be like, it it may be a book one day. I don't know, but like it could be so much more than just an hour podcast. So I'm going to try really hard to just stick to kind of high level stuff, but while, well, not high level, but just a couple stories from each experience rather than all the details. But I just know that there are too many people right now in our industry and probably outside of it, but in our industry is what I know, who are suffering in silence or who are just so overwhelmed, but feeling like they have to continue the charade and keep keep on putting on that stiff upper lip and just keep going. And sometimes you do, but (laughs) nothing's perfect. So that's what I'm going to say right now. This isn't easy for me. I've actually uh, (laughs) just stopped recording on the first 15 minutes of the first attempt of this because I was just babbling. I think I had, I literally for the first 12 minutes was providing a lot of excuses or a lot of like, it was a lot of preamble, right? Like, ah, I know that this is, but ah, you know, no, no, no. Like, I just need to cut a lot of that out and just say that I'm not doing this for myself. I'm terrified in some ways. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to take my birthday away or my career away necessarily, but there might be some people that change the way they look at me for a negative way, but that that really doesn't matter to me. And something that I've started doing fairly recently, based off of a th- quote that I read somewhere, and I wish I knew who to attribute this to, was when you lose your why, you lose your way. And I think our why is always so important. And my, so instead of writing an outline today, like I usually do, I usually have like four or five pages and I work on it for an hour of the order of things that I want to talk about, or, you know, if I'm interviewing someone, I, a lot of thought goes into the questions and, and who to interview and all of that. I didn't want to do that for several reasons, but mostly I just kind of wanted to roll with it and whatever my gut tells me I need to share, I'm going to, I mean, I have some idea. But what I did do is I wrote on a post-it note and I stuck it right up on my laptop where the camera usually is or where the camera is, but it's just not on. And I wrote my whys for today. This podcast is for those who do so much, but feel like it's never enough, who feel stuck in their job, in their marriage or anything else or anywhere else. 
who have no idea what's next or what should they should be doing, but know it's not where they are now. And it's for those who have big hopes, but have no idea what the what or the how is. One other disclaimer I want to say is, I mean, this is a super small industry. And so you might know some of the people or the companies that I worked with in the past. And, you know, I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to name any companies. I'm going to try hard not to. But, you know, it's human nature to be like, oh, my gosh, uh, I bet they're talking about that person or this place or blah, 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 blah. And, you know, go on. And I do the same thing. So this is why I know this. We all love the, you know, the the nitty gritty and and the juice. And I've done. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I've held back talking about some of the nitty gritty in my career is because I've wanted to respect former employers and former coworkers. And I think I still can. I mean, I still do. But I think that has been actually one of those things that my brain told me was my reason for doing it. But really, it was just to keep me safe. And it was fear talking. Because really, when I started to dissect that, I was like, does it really matter? I mean, it's been several years now. I've been working for myself for six years now. Like a lot of this is water under the bridge. And also to say that for the companies that I worked, I've worked for where they're still companies and still, you know, going strong, 95% of the people that were part of my story when I was there aren't there anymore. So I would just um, ask that you not jump to a lot of conclusions other than if you want to judge me, totally go for it. It's fair. I would imagine if you were to ask some of the people that I've worked with throughout my career about me, they probably wouldn't have the same perspective of me as people who have met me in the last few years. And that's totally fair. I think the biggest thing I want to share first is that I never intended on being a consultant. In fact, I never intended on it being this long. I didn't actually want to become one. So that's, I, I, every single time I've taken a step forward, I've never known what the outcome was going to be. I don't even know what the outcome of this podcast is going to be. I mean, Some of you listening to it, it may really resonate and help you. And that is the only reason why I am sharing my story warts and all. Some of you might think I'm crazy and never want to listen to me again. And some, you know, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to lose any clients over this, but who knows, right? We just never know what's going to happen after we take a first step. But I think the most important thing to do is take a step. So that is what I'm doing. Blind faith and all of that. So I was kind of this morning when I was walking my dog, I was trying to figure out where to start. And it's kind of hard to start mid story, but I'm not going to share a lot about my childhood. I've been very fiercely protective of it up until this point. Maybe that will change with this step of me talking more about my career. But I think it's easier for me to talk more about the things that have been in my control than the things that occurred when I wasn't in control. But what I think is good for you to know about the first 18 years of my life is that it was not even close to easy. I was really left with questioning my every thought, my every move. I mean, just gaslighted to the hilt. And also there was, you know, there was a lot of abuse. There was some really, really hard stuff. But like, I think that that's also where I've gotten my grit and my determination and why sometimes, you know, something hard has happened to me in my life where other people would give up. And I'm like, that's not even the hardest thing that's happened to me, you know, in my life. So I'm just gonna keep going. Like, you know, so there are some good things that come out of it. But my drive to be perfect my drive to always help others before helping myself, my self-doubt and lack of confidence. I think all of those things can, they're very straight line to the first 18 years of my life. And so that's kind of the 
the stage that I wanted to set first is just kind of, you know, it wasn't perfect. Pressure makes diamonds, as they say. And if that's the case, I must be one hell of a diamond. But, you know, I think it's easy to look at people and be like, oh, I'm sure they had perfect. And maybe they did, right? But I'm not one of them. So I'm going to just kind of leave it there. But the first several years of my career, oh, really not career, my adulthood, I was kind of rudderless and directionless. I did go to college, but if you listened to the episode about my career path and the previous podcast I was on, I mean, that was a little more of like a resume highlights reel, but that was still very scary for me in some ways because I shared for the first time that I didn't graduate college. I mean, it's on my LinkedIn, it's on my resume. I don't like, I don't ever pretend that I graduated college, but I think it's just assumed I have become a very trusted resource to some of the biggest companies in the world. And I think it's just assumed that I would have a college degree. I did not. And I did go to a college. I was, you know, straight A's in high school or pretty close and overachiever. I mean, I was president of like every club and all this other stuff, you know, it was all had to be perfect. And I got to college and it was like, oh, there's a lot more to life that I haven't figured out. And so those lessons kind of took precedent before <laughs> my education and those lessons. But also it was super expensive. I chose a private college that was very, very expensive. So I, I most of the time had three jobs going plus running, you know, being in school full time and trying to have a social life. So yeah, it just, it completely crapped out. And I, in the middle of my second year, I just, I left. I totally, I had every intention to go back for a lot of reasons, it, it never happened. And at this point, it's like, well, what would I major in? Because there's not really fraud prevention, you know? So, but that's, that is not to say that I am not encouraging my teenager every day to do what she needs to do to get to college and do that. Because I think it meant that I had to work eight times as hard, at least at the beginning of my career, than the people that had a bachelor's degree on their resume or a master's degree even on their resume or had those certificates. So it, I'm not glamorizing it. It, it also, I think it, because I didn't have that college degree, it made me feel like I had to work, you know, five times as hard and really put up with some really crappy bosses at the beginning. So yeah, it, if I could go back, I would, but I can't. So that's what it is. But I, so once I dropped out of college, I kind of had a lot of random jobs, kind of the usual bartending. Well, no, first, you know, hostessing, then serving, then bartending. I worked in retail. I worked with kids for a little bit. I actually, one of probably the most impactful jobs I had during that time was I worked on a cruise ship for three summers. Um, not the typical cruise ship you would think of though. Uh, they weren't, it wasn't this giant monstrosity on the ocean. It was like a 190 foot boat with maximum of a hundred passengers. And we primarily went to Alaska though in the off season, the boats will go different places. So I got to do a few of those routes as well. And it was really kind of an in-between between a private yacht and a really big boat. So there were a lot of affluent people, but it was a lot of hard work. I worked 18 to 19, 20 hours a day for six weeks straight with no days off. And then I would have two weeks off. And I also had to live with my coworkers. And a lot of people who choose to work on boats, especially back then before there were, you know, reality shows like Below Deck, etc. A lot of the people that were on boats were not necessarily the people that you would work with on land at any big job that, you know, a lot of them were running from things, running from the law, running from an ex-wife, running from drug addictions, etc. So they weren't, 
easy people to live with either. But it taught me so much. There's something about being in the middle of the ocean and not being able to walk off, literally, that teaches you tenacity and to put up with a lot of bullshit. Probably too much sometimes, but I also got to learn to and got to meet and be exposed to a lot of different people from all over the world. There were some, you know, diplomats, dignitaries from all over the world. And that really opened my eyes too, because I had been brought up in a relatively small town and pretty sheltered. I mean, it's probably the understatement of the year, but yeah. So I didn't get to meet a lot of people that were different than me. So that was a really good experience and probably a good, you know, pivoting point and tipping point and foundation for a career. I got into this industry by accident, like almost everyone else I know. I I think honestly, the only people I've met who haven't, who have gotten into fraud prevention on purpose are either much younger than me and knew that this industry existed or, you know, what it has become now, or that are in a country that requires military service and the military has trained you uh, to do a lot of the skills and techniques that are required for fraud prevention or cybersecurity. So, but for me, it was completely by accident. I was just needed a job and I may tell the story more in depth another time, but I kind of fell into being on the help desk side of merchant services and operations, technical as well as service. So part of the requirement for my first job in the industry or in that field was six months of training. And so I really got to learn the foundations of the payment processing process, not just from a process perspective, but also the technical side. I mean, I was downloading credit card terminals, physical credit card terminals. There was a very small section of the first company I worked for that supported online merchants, but I never made it that far with them. I I actually was fired from that job. I think it was officially the only job I've ever been fired, fired from. And it turns out I was pregnant, but I didn't know it till the next day. I was throwing up. It's just, it's a whole story, but it's, you know, again, I'm trying to kind of mow through so I can pull out the stories that I think, I think will be helpful that I want most of you guys to know that are, you know, that fall under my why category. But I do hope that this part helps, you know, like I had no grand plan. I had no clue that what credit card processing was. I just, it was just a job. It was just a call center job. Now, when I made it to the second processor after I'd had my daughter and I was now a single mom, very, very recently single mom, and living in someone's basement for a few weeks that was completely unfinished and, and moldy, etc. And oh, I was on welfare, I was on food stamps, I was on the whole nine, daycare assistance, etc. I knew that I never wanted to be on that for long. And I've always been someone who is so much more comfortable being the helper than the one being helped. And that probably won't ever change because I'm still like that. I'm getting a little bit better at accepting the help, but uh, it's not comfortable to me. So my really my first goal was I want to be able to support my child without needing all these things. And I, I worked my tail off for that. I mean, it meant having a 5 a.m. because I was the new person at the new call center. It was a 5 a.m. shift. I had to wake up at four in the morning and put my baby who was 18 months in the back of my car. She was still asleep, thankfully, drive her to her dad's house. I had a key and put her in her crib. I'd go to work until about 1.30. I'd sometimes be able to take a nap and then I'd pick her up from daycare. So she would go to bed at my house, wake up at her dad's. I mean, thankfully she doesn't remember any of it, but it was quite crazy, but it was just always trying to figure out, you know, how to make it work and, and figure out the now and maybe the next step. But that was like as far as I could go. 
At that time, I was making $11 an hour, and that was only 14 years ago. And it was hard, but I think all the other jobs I'd had had really taught me that no matter if you are, you know, bussing the tables and, and wiping off the food off the plate, or if you're the, you know, forward facing bartender or you're the manager, like it's still the most important job you have right now because it's the only job you have. And so I've always been someone who has probably taken it more seriously than a lot of the people in, in that spot, especially towards the beginning. So I think it made it kind of easy for me to stand out because there were a lot of other people who were just kind of complacent and this isn't a dig on them at all. It was just where they were in their lives. I didn't feel like I could be complacent because I was feeling the weight of the world on my shoulders. I had this newborn. I didn't, wasn't in a relationship. I didn't have anyone else's money I could count on. I wasn't getting child support. I mean, and for anyone who hasn't been on welfare and state assistance, they give you barely enough to, to survive. I mean, I, I never had enough for rent out of that. I think the most I ever got was like $200 a month. So, you know, it really was minimal and required me to really hustle my bustle and, and want something better for her. And that was really my why at the time. By standing out, I really also got to know other departments, including the risk department. And that led me to an opportunity to apply for a promotion that did not come easy. I actually almost didn't get it. Or did I not get it the first time? I don't even remember, but I know I almost didn't get it. I can't remember if I had to apply for it twice or not. A lot has happened since then, but I know it wasn't easy. I know that I had a lot to overcome because I didn't look that great on paper at the time. I hadn't had very many jobs for over, you know, six, nine months at a time. And I didn't really have any risk experience itself, but neither did anyone else. So that helped. And because I was the youngest in that, I think that's the only thing I can think of is it was because I was the youngest person in that group or because I, they thought I was a sucker because I always wanted to work hard. They gave me uh, the Silicon Valley bank portfolio. So the payment processor that I worked for uh, did a lot of backend payment processing for clients of banks. So, you know, when a client would use Silicon Valley Bank for loans and for all of everything. They, of course, wanted to have their merchant processing tied into that too. Not only to have all the money flowing in and, and being paid on those things, but also to have a complete 10,000 foot view, especially for startups of knowing where's the, where's the money coming from, where's it going, etc. So at the time, it was 2007 and eight, I believe. And there were a lot of... It, it, the first boom and bust had already happened. This was kind of the second boom. And a lot of the companies in that portfolio are companies that, you know, we've all heard of that are either, you know, still they're they're now actually, I should say, like behemoths or they were really big at the time. The one that I've been just very recently started sharing stories about is Facebook, but there were several others as well. I put my everything into that because I just knew that whatever was in front of me, I was going to do the very best I, I could and hope that that would lead to better opportunities. At the time, it was I wanted a raise. I actually kind of got screwed by that company because I was making $11 an hour at the call center and the salary level for the risk department was quite significant. Even the lowest bump on the salary was was significantly different from $11 an hour and the hourly amount for that. And so the company knew that they could take advantage of me and they said, well, that's too big of a jump for one person at one time. So we're going to give you 30% of it now, 30% of it in six months, and the final 30% in a year. They actually, I don't think I ever saw the final 30%, but 
at the time it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm getting completely screwed because everyone else in this department are working half as much as me and half as hard, but they're making literally twice as much, if not more, because the bottom rung was twice as much as I was making. So that I very easily could have been very frustrated about that. And I really, really was, but that's the thing about not having a college degree and having kind of a sorted resume. I didn't really have a lot of agency to say, screw you guys, I'm going somewhere else. There weren't any other options. So I tried to, you know, I, I obviously reminded my boss when I hit milestones, like, Hey, I'd, I'd like that other money now. But at the same time, you know, anything was better than where I was. So I took what I could get and just kept working harder. And I kept thinking if I can just prove myself to them, if I just prove myself to them, they'll, you know, give me the other part that I'm owed. That didn't happen. But still, the benefits I got from that job far exceed any monetary value I could have gotten at the time. I still fall back on things I learned during that time about the payment process, about the chargeback process from that side of the fence and how it works on the payment processor side and the relationships that I built. I mean, I'm still in touch with several of the account managers at Silicon Valley Bank, and they still tell me I was the best support person that they had. And it's very kind of them, but I sure tried. I really put myself into it. And I I would always go an extra mile knowing that no one else, if you haven't gone through six months of training on what the payment process is like and what a chargeback is and all these other things, you're not going to know the things that I knew. So I would take my time and explain that to them. And I recently shared a story on LinkedIn that you know, apparently resonated with over 10,000 people. This was just one of the universe's signs that I needed to be a little bit more vulnerable right now and be a little more, you know, honest about the, the hard stuff and not just the good stuff, which are so much more easier to talk about, is that at the time my boss called me in to reprimand me and it was actually more than once, but for the sake of the LinkedIn post, it was once to yell at me and tell me that I was working too hard and I, you know, was doing too much and just really yelling at me. It, it wasn't coming from a place of concern, like, hey, I don't want you to burn yourself out. I see that you're the last one leaving. I was only the last one leaving on the days that my daughter was with her dads because at night because I didn't want to be at home. But um, also, that was time that I could spend in, in getting caught up, but also that I was spending too much time on the phone with clients and with SVB, etc. And I I could have so easily given in. And, and to some extent, I did because I, I needed the job. I couldn't just say, screw you, I'm going to work hard. There's a lot of fear and a lot of things that when you're at the beginning of your career, you just don't have the agency that you do, you know, when you're older and more experienced, but you also don't have the confidence. And I feel like some managers know that. So they know that you don't really have a leg to stand on. So they know that you'll cower or you'll shrink. And I did, but I also kept doing what I knew I did in some ways, at least from a obvious perspective, but I would just make it look like I was going for a long lunch. And instead, I'd go into another department and use their conference room to have calls with my clients or I would do things like that. Uh, because what I learned is that actually it had nothing to do with caring about me or about the business or anything. My manager was really mad that I was this young girl. I was quite significantly younger than other people on her team. And I was, I had become the go-to person for other departments and they'd say, Hey, well, you know, I'm just going to ask Carice because I know she'll give me the answer or they'd just come over and ask me. And other people on the team were really upset that they had long tenure and they weren't the ones being asked or, you know, those kinds of things. So 
I learned a lesson that a lot of times, especially when you have bad managers, it's not actually about you at all. And it took me way too long to learn that. But it, I really took it to heart. Like, oh, I guess I don't know what I'm doing because she must know more than me because she makes more and she has a bigger title and all of those things. But for some reason, something inside me just kept working. And I had actually met a guy long distance. I, I really had zero intention of getting into a relationship. But some of my friends will remind me that during that time when my daughter was you know, really young, I used to say that I was never like I went on a couple dates. And after those, I was like, I am not going to get married until she's 18. Like, there's just no way I'm not bringing another guy into her life. Like, I'm not going to date, etc. I went on a spur of the moment, like last minute camping trip with a couple of people I worked with when I was in the call center at the processor and met a boy on the camping trip. He was a friend of theirs from out of town. And we just started talking and we, I didn't, you know, I wasn't seeing wedding bells or anything like that. It was just like, well, I'm going to keep talking to him for as long as it makes sense. But I also had, you know, a career and everything else. So it was actually really nice that it was long distance for the first two years because I was able to really focus on moving up in my career without all the, you know, attention that can come with that from, you know, outside. But after, you know, a year and a half of being long distance, I was ready to consider, start thinking about moving to the big city of Seattle. And but I had no idea how it was going to happen. I would apply for jobs and just one after one after one, I would get turned down. I actually came over to Seattle for an interview with a newer company at the time. I mean, they'd been around for a little while selling books, but like it was pretty new. It was called Amazon. You may have heard of it. I went through this huge, you know, interview process with the panel and everything, and it was terrifying. And I, you know, I'd done a risk on the merchant processing side, but I didn't totally know how that would transition to the merchant side. But it was going well, and I think I did well. And they were basically mostly hiring for the holiday season because they had started to carry things other than just books, and they knew it was going to be a big holiday season. But they said that there was, you know, a strong potential for moving on for full time. And I, I thought, okay, this could be perfect. Oh, I'll, you know, I'll prove myself. But then towards the end, they were asking me about my availability. And I said, well, you know, I'll be a single mom. And so I assume whatever daycare is, you know, open, but I'll, you know, when I'm there, I'm there. I always, my 100% is anyone else's 150. You know, I will go big. I will go home. I will never go home basically, except for when I need to take care of my child. And they said, oh yeah, no, like we need you 24 seven, like we can't, we can't have you just relying on daycare. If you don't have a support system, like we just can't hire you. And I just remember being crushed and thinking I'm never going to make it to Seattle, like just never. But I just kept going. And I actually ended up getting a job that's not on my resume because it was like less than three months, not because I'm trying to hide anything. I just didn't think it was relevant. I don't think it's relevant at this point, but I did get a position with a online gaming company, one of the newer, the first ones at the time doing fraud prevention for three months and it was miserable. I learned a lot, obviously, and I still keep in touch with one or two people from there, but there was someone on the team that was a jealous female. She had been the only female in the entire department of not just fraud, but customer service. And so she'd gotten used to that attention in a, you know, gaming company that for really lack of better term and not meant to be like disparaging at all to anyone who plays a lot of games, but they were kind of nerdy guys. I was in a relationship. I was just coming over to Seattle for that. Like we were living out of his one bedroom apartment while I was trying to find a 
place for my daughter and I, like I had $600 in my bank account when I moved my car full of things over here. Like <laughs> I haven't had a lot of help from family over the years, if really any. And so, especially at that time, because my, my family didn't feel like I was making the best choices as a single mom and moving across the, the state for, you know, a boy. So I, so I really, it was just a hope and a prayer and a wish. And I was certain that I was going to have to go back to Spokane. Just, I knew it. Like I knew I'd have to go back and, you know, admit defeat, but I wouldn't, sometimes I test myself and I just say, okay, which am I going to regret more? Doing the thing or not doing the thing? And sometimes that's what gives me the teeny tiny thread of courage to do the thing, even when everything inside of me is like, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to try. I'm just going to take a step and hope that there's ground underneath. So that was a horrible experience. She made my life living a nightmare. I mean, it was just awful. But there was this smaller company that I had worked with when I was at the merchant processor that I had taken extra time with. And I never took extra time with anyone because I expected anything out of it or, or knew, you know, thought that I would, but like, I, I just, that just was never my intention, but I did know them and I felt okay just, you know, touching base with them. And they were based in Seattle. And that summer that I moved over here, they were featured in one of the biggest movies of the summer in 2008. And that was Sex and the City, the movie. They were a handbag rental company. They also rented out sunglasses and, and accessories and jewelry and all of that. And they were, I, I knew they had fraud before they were in the movie. I knew that once a lot of people learned about them, it would be super duper fraud. So I just sent an email to the CFO uh, right after watching the movie in the movie theater and just said, hey, I watched it and I was really, you know, proud to see your company named and knowing that I've worked with you and you know, just, I, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, I know, you know, that I'm not your, you know, risk analyst anymore, but I wanted to let you know that I'm in Seattle. And, you know, if you ever need anything, or, you know, if you're looking to hire someone to start up fraud, I'd, I'd love to be considered. What I didn't know was that that first month after the movie came out, that there they had lost a very very significant and very high percentage of their profit margins in items that never came back so it made a lot of sense to bring on a manager and because they knew me because they knew that I knew my stuff I mean I certainly didn't know as much as I thought I did at the time and the best way to learn is by being pushed into the deep end but they did know that I knew more than they did and so they they took a chance on me and that really changed a big part of my life and really my career trajectory. So here I was 28, a single mom living in the big city of Seattle and managing. Well, I didn't even have a team yet, but I was hired as the manager for, I think they called it customer financial services or something like that, because that's what a previous retailer had done. And they didn't want to have it called fraud to scare people away. Totally understandable, especially at that time. It was crazy to not only have to worry about stolen credit cards, but also people not returning merchandise. eBay was at the height of its, you know, that was really when eBay was big. I mean, they're still very big, but that was when they were kind of the only marketplace out there. And there was a, you know, recession in the U.S. that had just started. And it was just a lot. I mean, I, I could tell hours of stories just from that time working there, but I really... 
I, I really poured myself into it. I cared so deeply about wanting to stop every single dollar of fraud. And I got really close. I mean, I reduced fraud and chargebacks by over 95% in the first year. Like I was really proud of myself because I'd never been on the merchant side before. I was basically testing the hypothesis of the advice that I had been giving merchants for um, a couple of years at that point as a risk analyst formerly. I did bring on a team. A lot of it was manual. We There was only one fraud provider back then. So I tried really hard to fight for resources to get our own internal scoring system. The CEO kept saying no and very, very grateful that the head of development pulled me aside one day and said, hey, I worked for a jewelry company before this and we had to build a fraud department or we had to build a fraud system for them. And I think I know what you need. I'm going to assign you an engineer. He can come in on the weekends. Can you come in on the weekends too? And I was like, absolutely. So we basically did this like without getting proper prioritization from leadership. And I, I still, I don't know, I probably still have it somewhere. This piece of paper on a spiral notebook that I drew out one night. My daughter was like four at the time and she was sleeping next to me in my bed. And I just threw out every single piece of information that I thought was needed and that I knew existed somewhere in the data, in the data warehouse to help me and my future team determine risky orders. And it really wasn't, like I said, it wasn't just the signals for bad purchases, but also people who were just in over their head or could pay for the first week or month, but couldn't pay for the next. It was a crazy business model. And I certainly would have made some significant changes to it if I was in leadership, but I wasn't. So I just did the very best I could and brought on a team and really, I mean, it was ups and downs like crazy, but I worked a bazillion hours. I barely made anything, especially compared to the other leadership. As the company, about a year and a half in, the company started to go um, downhill and I realized that I was going to have to leave. And that was super hard because I created that that whole team from scratch and the system from scratch and, you know, the policies and procedures. And the, I mean, I just, I had, I had put my blood, sweat and tears literally into this and I didn't want to, it, it was really, really hard to let it go. Throughout that time I had actually attended and then spoken at my first fraud conference. And that was really when I got the speaking bug. I will share that story another time, but speaking for the first time did not come easy to me. I was absolutely terrified. I tried to back out. They actually had to like sneak my husband in, well, boyfriend at the time, in the front row so I could just talk to him about chargebacks for an hour. But once I did it, man, did I feel on top of the world. And I really realized how much I just love to help people have light bulbs come off. And it has nothing to do with me thinking I know everything. It's just, I really enjoy that. I think that's why I wanted to be a teacher so long ago. So that actually allowed me to have a connection at one of the um, biggest travel agencies in the world, online travel agencies in the world. And I then went and, sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. Okay. (laughs) So I reached out to the people at the largest travel agency that I had spoken with or that I had met at one of the conferences and they're also based in the Seattle area. 
And they said, you know, we actually have a need for someone to come in and figure out what to do with these friendly fraud chargebacks. And this was 2010. And that was right around when friendly fraud even became a term, which, you know, really was because of the recession. There were a lot of people who American consumerism is a crazy addictive thing. And people still wanted the nice things that they wanted or wanted to go on the trips, but just couldn't afford them. So then they'd charge them back. And there were had also been some really significant changes to the fraud chargeback rules at the time. So that also greatly increased fraud charge fraud reason code chargebacks very quickly. So I went in, I was actually on the payroll for the chargeback company that they worked with at the time, but there but they I was working on site at the travel company. It was apparent that that was needed. I from scratch created this process to help them determine, you know, if a trend if a chargeback was friendly fraud or not because if it was true fraud, they needed to put it in the fraud model, but if it was just someone who called their bank and said it was fraudulent, but it really wasn't and there were no other, you know, signs and signals and anyone who's in fraud fighting knows that there are ways to tell. It's not like orders go in red blinking lights, but you can tell based off the data. So, I again, put my hypothesis to uh, work on a much bigger scale. And over the course of almost a year, created this process. And as of about a year ago, it's still in place and saving them millions of dollars. My salary was like not even close to that. It was, I I mean, one of the problems with not having a degree, right? You take what you can get. So it was very, very low. I think it was like, I I mean, low for Seattle, I guess. I don't even want to quote it because it probably would seem very high to other areas, but it was you know, probably below middle class in Seattle, but I still, I put everything I had into that. And then I created a four hour training on chargebacks for the largest trade association in fraud and got to present it. Actually, we had so many people sign up that we had to present it twice, myself and the person who also, the co-creator of the training and met a lot of great people through that. And actually that training is, has been, has been updated and changed and modulated so much, but the base of it was what I created 10 years ago. And startup came up to me after that training and asked if I'd be willing to consult for them. And they are a very, very large marketplace now, but they weren't at the time. They were just allowing PayPal to PayPal transactions for their for their buyers and sellers to transition, you know, PayPal funds to each other. And so they weren't involved in the transaction. They were losing out on revenue from the fees as well as, you know, from upcharging the fees as well as a lot of insight into what was happening between their buyers and sellers. So they were in the process of doing that and they recognized that chargebacks were going to be an issue. So they hired me while I was still working for the travel company. I started working with them on building the foundation and really doing preventative steps and FAQs for buyers and sellers and really with the entire intention of reducing chargebacks. In that time, I made, I really was advocating hard. I really wanted a permanent position at that travel company. I really wanted to move higher up. I felt like I'd proved myself, proven myself by building that big, you know, process. And I was ready for the next challenge, and I, I wanted it. And I applied for a couple, and and didn't get them. And I remember distinctly having several conversations with the director of fraud at the time and saying like I am not a sustainer I don't sustain processes and that's what they wanted and he said well but if you go to a different position in the company who's who's gonna run this who's gonna do it you know everything about it and I was very brave in the moment and I said 
you know, if, but if I leave the company, you're not going to get any of that information. And I said, you can either, I can either move into another position in the company and I can always be a resource for whoever takes the role and sustains this process, or you can get two weeks in a training manual and his inaction and also just the blow offs that I kept getting all the time was answer enough for me that I needed to look somewhere else. Well, this company that was doing the, that I was consulting for, I thought it was going to be a very long project. So I made, I took the risk and went out on my own. Didn't end up being a super long project. And I ended up being in a position where I didn't know where I was going to do. Like I, I didn't know how I was going to, you know, I looked at jobs and everything and I tried to do more consulting, but I didn't have the network I have now. And I also, I mean, gosh, I've learned so much in the last six years about being out on my own that I just, I had no clue back then. This is nine years ago. So it was the wrong time. And I felt like a total failure. I had told everyone I'm going to be a consultant. I mean, oh yeah, I'm going to be, you know, I mean, I don't think I talked that big, but like I had, I was hopeful that I was going to be able to figure it out. And at that, that just wasn't the right time, but it was super humbling And at the time, there just wasn't another position in the Seattle area at my level that made sense or or would be good. And I certainly applied for several, but just they didn't work out either because I recognized that I wouldn't have work-life balance, which I was starting to want a little bit as my daughter was getting older. And we actually, my husband and I, you know, the guy I was dating long distance got married in 2010. So I wanted to spend more time with my family and not work nights and weekends all the time, you know, on my laptop in my house, but still working nights and weekends on top of, you know, from when daycare opened to when it closed, she was there. There's a little regret there, but not going into that. So I actually went and worked for a healthcare company, a health insurance company. They were actually an HMO for like 10 months and it was brutal. I really learned that we are spoiled by the fast pace of e-commerce and so that, you know, it just, it uh, wasn't, (laughs) we're spoiled by, by the pace of e-commerce really. And there were people that had been there for 20 or 30 years. You did not like this girl coming in who like is a complete overachiever and perfectionist and wants to change everything and work super hard. Some of them just wanted to sit and wait until they retired and I actually think that it's great that there are some people in the world that are like that because we need them. But I just have never been that person. I've always wanted to do a little bit more and, and work hard and, you know, earn my paycheck and, you know, continue to remind my employer why they hired me. And just, you know, that was always very important to me. So I came in probably like a ton of bricks and they weren't so happy about it. I had a massive undertaking of a project to have the entire the entire organization go cashless and the, they had a lot of health clinics and things. And so that was really hard, but cash was actually costing them more than they were getting. So I did project management for them for several months and it was not what I wanted. It was not e-commerce. It was not fraud. It was not, didn't light me up. It was just a job, which doesn't work for me. (laughs) Again, I think it's great that there are some people that can go in and punch a time clock and do the same thing every day. I think we need those people for a lot of roles. I just am never going to be one of them. And that is something I learned along the way in my process of my career. So I really, you know, struggled a lot. I didn't know what my purpose was. And aside from that, I got physically ill. I had a really, 
really, really bad pain in my uh, right lower side and couldn't figure out what it was. It actually went misdiagnosed for about eight to nine months because I was on that company's health insurance and under their care and they did things differently. So while I should have gotten an MRI pretty quickly, didn't happen. I had to go to every single specialist and get misdiagnosed with some random thing before I could get an MRI. So eight months went by with this excruciating pain. And finally, with the MRI, we found out that I had a labral tear, which is apparently an an injury that like only athletes get. But I think it was my body's way of asking me to slow down or telling me to slow down. It didn't work as well as it should have. But I did slow down a little bit. But over that time, I was asked if I would be interested. There was an open position for a program manager at the trade association that I had volunteered for for several years as a speaker, as a committee member, etc. And, you know, as a trainer and all the things. And I was, you know, decently involved in it. And I wasn't on the board, but I was, you know, pretty involved in the organization back then. It was a lot different than it is now, but well, not a lot, a lot, but some things were really different. So I was asked to consider becoming a program manager. And that was really my dream job, but I had some hesitations and they were alleviated. And so I went from, I, you know, left the healthcare company fairly quickly and went to the trade association. And that by far was my dream job as far as what the mission was and the purpose. And I am very proud of the things that I created there, the, the mentorship program, the roundtables that occur the first day of every conference, the I mean, there's so many things that I am really, that are still there to this day that I'm, I'm very proud of. And I also kind of became the trusted person of all the members of when they didn't know who to ask a question to, they asked me and I would either know the answer or I would find someone who did. And I loved connecting them. I I connected two of the biggest box retailers to each other at an event in Boston. I got to travel a lot. I got to speak at some of the biggest companies in the world, like Google, like Square. I got to do a lot of really cool things. And I absolutely loved it. But there was also... A tremendous amount of stress. It felt like I was running uphill with like a just backpack full of bricks in my back. I mean, it was just really hard. I felt like I had to continually prove myself. I was often put down a lot by leadership, laughed at a lot, you know, just really, I, I wasn't encouraged. I wasn't ever told like, hey, you're doing a good job. And so I just kept trying harder and harder and harder. And I think what happened was as I was trying to do a good job and and please people that were, you know, had already made up their mind about me long ago and also who had their own motivations, they, especially one of them really wanted me to stay small and on the background so that they could be the voice of the organization. And so they would do things like, Hey, Carice, what's, you know, what's going on in mobile fraud or whatever. I mean, this is right when apps were taking, I mean, I feel ancient when I talk about these things, but it really wasn't that long ago. Mobile fraud was just starting or mobile commerce was really starting to pick up. And so they'd, you know, ask me that question, right? That's just an example of one of them. And at first I would be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And this company said this and that company said that, and this is what these guys are doing. And, you know, really future focused and all that stuff. But then I realized that when they would get up on stage at an event, they would never say, hey, thanks, you know, so much to Carice for curating this information or, you know, none of that. It was like they were the expert. And what I thought was weird is they'd never actually worked in risk or fraud in their, you know, in their career operationally or, you know, as a practitioner. So they really they were really good at like taking high level details and making it sound like they knew what they were talking about. But 
that really, you know, discouraged me and made me feel like, okay, I'm just supposed to be behind the scenes. But I really focused on the things that I loved creating committees, creating, you know, the Gamer Safety Alliance and the ticketing and travel group and meeting just some incredible people that are still, you know, great friends now and also creating all the or helping to create all the content for conferences. And I mean, I probably did three people's jobs, not well, there was one person whose job I really did do and they did get let go a couple weeks after I left. But I mean, I mean that they easily could have hired, but other than that one person, they easily could have hired three people to take on what I was doing and I still would be overwhelmed. But I just was such a perfectionist and I just kept leaning into it and my body just kept giving out. I mean, I had an 18 month period after that hip surgery where I had a car accident in May and then I had another car accident in December and both of them, especially the one in December caused permanent nerve damage in my neck. And I think I strongly believe that that was my body trying to make me rest. And I just wouldn't. I mean, I testified in federal court like a couple of weeks after major surgery. Like I just, I kept going. And I think my biggest, I mean, I could talk about that for a long time. Oh, then the last injury that was kind of the last straw was we were on our, I think, fourth leader of the company at the time in one year. And, and that's, it was very tumultuous. Obviously, that just brought on a lot of change and chaos and dysfunction and different views of what should happen and everything else. But I broke my ankle at an international conference, an attendee or a board member, really, they put their backpack in the middle of a doorway. And I came walking around the corner and just went flying. And I had already broken my ankle like eight years before that. And so it re-injured it. And it was very swollen. And I that you can't even get ibuprofen in this country without a prescription. And the leader at the time said that I was the only person that could do what I did. And we were having a conference the next day for the next three days. And I was required to do all my duties. And if I didn't want to do, if I didn't want to do those, I would be let go and they would cancel, they would not pay for my return flight. So I had no choice. And I, I worked on a broken ankle in a foreign country for three days, walking all over the conference center or the hotel And I think the flight home from that with my foot just hurting so, so bad. And I I actually, my doctor said that I made it a lot worse and the surgery to repair it was a lot worse than it probably would have been if I would have not worked on it so long. But I, that was kind of when I started to go, okay, writing on the wall, I need to figure something else out. I just can't, I'm going to kill myself. Like I, I mostly did it to myself. I want to make that super clear. It was because I cared too much and everything else. I mean, I was crying at work all the time. I mean, I was pretty much a mess, but it was because I cared so much and I wanted to save the world. And I think that a lot of us who are fraud fighters feel very similar. And sometimes we become martyrs very unconsciously and we're not taking care of our basic needs or just even like the the ones that help us, you know, rest and digest and heal I mean, I've had a doctor recently tell me that I was in sympathetic nervous system mode for decades or at least about 15 years. And I've done some very permanent damage to my body and my health since then. I'm you know, going through some treatments now that, you know, are helping that and they're very medically advanced, but it's been a really long road. The biggest thing I forgot to mention was with all of the injuries piling up, my nervous system just completely got fried. And I ended up with fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain disease. I still have it to this day. And it really, I should say it's getting so much better in the last few months. And that is why I'm able to put more energy into my business. But 
I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. I didn't get to spend weekends with my family because I was just trying to recuperate from the week before where I put everything, I just laid everything out on the field and then would go back the next day. And I am hearing from so many merchant fraud fighters that are in the same boat right now, switching gears to current life, you know, to, to now 2020 COVID has tested our resilience in ways we never thought it could. And especially as fraud fighters, because I mean, for a lot of people, their websites have had holiday level traffic year, you know, almost all the time now. Like I was going to say year round, but it hasn't been a year yet. I guess we're getting there, but you know, we don't, we need to pace ourselves. I think if I've learned any lessons from all of that up until that point, it's that we need to stop and take care of ourselves before it gets so bad. And our body will start to whisper and then it'll start to speak and then it will start to scream if you're not listening. And I am living proof of that. I have tremendous amount of guilt that there was a significant time when my daughter was, you know, 10 to 12. I mean, it wasn't the full two years, but where I was on the couch a lot of the time, we actually had to get a new couch because I was laying on it so much that we got a dent in the middle. But it was just because I was in so much pain and I was also very depressed. A big side effect of fibromyalgia is depression and it wrecked me for a while. I put so much value and so much weight on the opinions of others, the opinions of the people who were in leadership above me, who, I mean, I don't, I don't know why at the time I thought that they, you know, knew everything because they had a bigger title and a bigger paycheck, but I I learned that they didn't. That's not to say that I haven't had some really great leaders and, and mentors along the way. I have the travel company. I had one of the best bosses I've ever had. And then his boss, who I also really liked there, came over to the trade association and was there for just a few months. And that was probably the best time of my tenure there for lots of reasons. So, I mean, I've had great leaders and mentors, but at the same time, there's not everybody who becomes a manager is really the best people person. So, or the person to mold and grow and encourage people. I didn't really have that very much in, in a lot of my career, except for those two times. So, you know, I kind of had to just, I kind of just put my head down and put blinders on and just kind of kept going and kept going and would just keep, I wouldn't, think about the things I wouldn't let them settle I wouldn't process them it was just like 10,000 miles an hour and I just hit a complete wall after breaking my ankle and all of that it was I was a mess and I loved what I did with everything I had I loved the purpose I loved the the mission and the potential of the organization and I still think very highly of it and I But there were a lot of things that I would try to propose that I thought would be really, you know, really beneficial that would get stonewalled at certain points because a lot of things needed authorization, either from the board because it was a nonprofit or from the leadership at the time. And that was changing all the time. So sometimes they wouldn't know or wouldn't care. They'd have different agendas or different priorities, whatever. But everything that I proposed was because I was hearing about it from the members. It was what they wanted, not what I wanted. I mean what they wanted was what I wanted. But like, I wasn't just saying, Oh, I want to do this. It was no, I have had so many people say that this is what they need. So I want to go off and create it. And I felt like after two and a half years, I had proven myself that every program that I had implemented so far had been successful that I thought it would be easier. And it just wasn't. And there was also going, there was writing on the wall, there was gonna be another leadership change. And so there was just, it was a perfect storm of things that I had to walk away. And it was one of the hardest decisions 
leaving the startup where I created everything from scratch and leaving the organization where I pretty much had put my entire identity into it was crushing. It was really, really hard. But I also knew in my gut that I had to do it or it was going, I mean, I do, I was afraid what the next lesson was going to be from life. I was afraid what the next injury was going to be. And so, yeah, I took a huge leap, but I actually didn't take a leap into consulting. And I hope you guys are realizing now that like, (laughs) this was not a smooth path. I heard the term, somebody said that like their life had felt like an EKG of like up and down and up and like these steep ups and these steep downs. I feel like mine in some ways is an EKG, but then like with a heart attack in the middle, you know, where there's like this really low point where nothing happens because I was trying to heal my body for a few years, but, and then my family as well, there was some really hard stuff there too, but I'm going to go into the rest of it on the next episode. And I'm not quite sure what it's going to look like if we're going to dump both of them the same week or not. I'm sorry, but this took up a lot more time than I thought, but I'm really hopeful that I mean, like I said at the very beginning of this, the only reason I'm sharing this path is because I'm hopeful that it's going to help people. I'm hopeful it's going to help you see that even if you have no clue why you're in the position you're in, or if you're in an entry level position, or you have a boss from hell, which I've had a few of them, that you can still get through it and out of it. That doesn't define you. I think you need to have resilience for sure and strength, and you have to really be willing to work on yourself and do a lot of self-reflection of, well, why did I do the things I did or what went wrong at that job? And I've been super honest with myself. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've, you know, really been too passionate. I've cared too much. I haven't listened to other people. I haven't always gone about things the right way. Like I've been brutally honest with myself about those situations, especially the ones that were the hardest. And I think that's how I was able to move on and still take chances and not just say, okay, I'm a failure. I certainly felt like a failure for, if I'm being honest, a few years after I left that job, but I kept showing up and trying to do the right thing and and kept wanting to help people and, and find a way to use my voice in a way that would be helpful to people and, and use my voice and my skills. So Again, this is, this is where I'm going to stop, but again, this is kind of what I'm, I just don't want anyone to think that this was perfect or that this was, you know, easy. It wasn't. And so wherever you're at right now, I think it's important to think about what, what do you want to be doing? What's your goal? You know, there's a lot of different segments of fraud fighting that you can go into. There's the vendor or the merchant side. There's, you know, within the vendor side, there's sales, there's marketing, there's, you know, product, there's engineering, there's, you know, industry expert. There's so many things there. And then also on the merchant side, you can go into operations, you can go into investigations, product management, project management, people management, strategy and analytics. Like, There's so many different things. And I don't think many of us take enough time to just step back and be like, am I happy where I'm at? What do I love about it? What do I not love about it? What can I do differently? How can I take this opportunity that I'm in now, even if I have no idea where it's going? How can I make it the best so that it is a stepping stone to the next step and not just, you know, it's all one level, right? And if you're an analyst at one job, you go to be an analyst at another and you just stay that way. I think the majority of us hold back out of fear and I am 100% in that camp, but for whatever reason, and and maybe it is because of my childhood, maybe it is because I had really crappy times that I'm like, ah, 
I got through all that. I can get through this. Like, this is nothing. I don't really know if it was naivety or bravery. I I still can't tell you, but I trusted my gut as much as I could. The times I didn't trust my gut, I regretted it. And I really just stuck to it. So the next one, I'm going to share with you how I accidentally became a consultant, accidentally became a podcaster. Like none of this has been planned. I am just now after six years of owning my business, starting to actually proactively plan my business. So (laughs) I really don't think I'm the gold standard, but I, there is a phrase that I really love and I've kind of made it my mantra. And I think that Nelson Mandela was the first person to say it, but it says I never, or he said, I never lose. I only win or learn. And that is something that I hope that I can leave you with that you know, may you never lose. May you only win or learn. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description. 